0: Stand again, turn your Bibles to Psalm 23. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 458. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would feed us. From your word, God, that you would lead us, help us to know you more, to know the comfort, and the provision that you alone can give. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I think there are generally two types of people in the world. The first type is the person who tells the same exact story when he's given the opportunity, given you know, cer- certain circumstances, right? That person, who, you know the story's coming. The second person is the person who rolls their eyes at the first person. I'm probably the first person. I often hear Lindsay and the kids say, you say that every time. And I say, no, I don't. I probably got that from my dad. He is quite the storyteller. I think there's actually a a certain element at play here for both people. The first person loves the familiarity of the story. They love the feeling that they get when they retell that story. It evokes comfort, maybe some humor, nostalgia. The second person is a bit annoyed by the familiarity. They say it gets old, right? I think we all can, I say there's two types of people, but I think we all can can maybe tend towards one or the other, depending on the situation. But what on earth does that little scenario, what does that have to do with Psalm 23? Well, there is a familiarity with Psalm 23. It's so widely known. It's read at most funerals. It's kind of the, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is read at almost every funeral or at every wedding, (laughs) um, John 3.16 is the sign at every football game. Psalm 23 is is the funeral passage, right? Christopher Ash in his commentary, says, one of the problems with Psalm 23 is it's anesthetizing familiarity. Anesthetizing familiarity. Whether we like it or not, we get numb to it. Like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, right? And let's be honest. That response, that is just our sinful, cynical hearts responding negatively to something that we actually desperately need. If there's something you need to hear for the thousandth time, like your uncle telling the story about how if the coach would have put him in in the fourth quarter, they'd have won state. It's this, right? Psalm 23. Let us not be anesthetized by familiarity this morning. Let us open our ears to hear our shepherd's voice. Let us open our hearts to remember who he is and what he has done for us. Remembering is how we avoid getting anesthetized by familiarity. And there are three ways that I believe Psalm 23 can help us to remember. If you're taking notes, all three of them are going to start by remember by, and then there's two words for each one. So you could write those probably all down and I'll come back to them. Remember by quietly resting. Remember by abundantly feasting. And remember by expectantly longing. So remember by quietly resting, abundantly feasting, and expectantly longing. Before we look at what it looks like to remember by quietly resting, I want us to consider something that is highlighted in verse 1 of this psalm that I think is often overlooked. Go ahead and look at verse 1. Read it to yourself. don't need to read it out loud, but read it to yourself in your head. What do you think is the most important word in verse 1? Go ahead and shout it out. Okay. Anybody else? Who said that? My. Yeah. I mean, you can disagree with me. I think it's my. Okay. Why? If you know me, you know, I'm not arguing for this individualistic emphasis in in faith and theology, right? Where it's all about us. It's actually exactly the opposite. David's audacity here to call Yahweh my shepherd, the Lord, the creator of all things, for him to say, the Lord is my shepherd. This is totally in keeping with the pattern that was set before him in the scriptures. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 in the burning bush, before he even revealed his divine name, I am who I am, where we get the name Yahweh, he said this to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, those men could have all claimed, my God. The Lord is my God. And so could David here. And so can you and I today. We can say, the Lord is my God. The Lord is my shepherd. He is not just some impersonal force out there zapping things in space, right? He is our personal God. This is such an intimate picture here of David's relationship with the Lord. And it's meant for us to not just read as something that was true 3,000 years ago in this agrarian society, but something that is profoundly true for us today in 2023 where none of us are sheep farmers. Right? This feels very distant. From us, but we like David should be able to say, The Lord is my shepherd. So the first thing I want us to see as we dive into Psalm 23 here that helps us to remember is remember by quietly resting. We see that in verses one through four. David says at the end of verse one, I shall not want. Means he lacks nothing. He has all that he needs. He is satisfied and content in his relationship with God, his shepherd. Which we see further explained by David in verses two through four. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's a book that's been around since 1970. You may have it on your shelf at home, or you may have seen it somewhere on someone else's shelf or in a library somewhere. It's called a shepherd's look at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. When Lindsay and I were in college, we babysat for this family and they had that book on their shelf. And I always looked at that book and I said, I want to read that book someday. Well, I still haven't read the book, but it was on the shelf in the library here, probably from uh, books that were left over from the church that was here before Fortico. And I grabbed that book this week and I opened it up and looked through it and it's, it's actually really good. So I think I'm gonna try to try to read that. Um, very insightful, though. Philip Keller uh, did, did work uh, with, with shepherds and, and new shepherding work. So he explains four requirements for sheep to lie down. He explains that due to their timidity, there must be four things that are true. First, they must be free from all fear. Second, they must be free from friction with other sheep. So they obey God's word by not letting the sun go down on their anger. Third, they must not be tormented by flies or parasites. And fourth, they must be free from hunger. He also goes on to explain how it's really hard work to get the grass to stay lush and green, especially in certain parts of the world. And then he explains what the result is of a shepherd's failure to provide green pastures. He says, a hungry, ill-fed sheep is ever on its feet, on the move, searching for another scanty mouthful of forage to try and satisfy its gnawing hunger. Such sheep are not contented. They do not thrive. They are no use to themselves nor to their owners. They languish and lack vigor and vitality. Friends, I wonder today, are we ill-fed? Are we trying to satisfy our gnawing hunger with dry grass? Are we discontented? Are we not thriving? Or are we, as David describes here, those who don't want? Those who lie down in green pastures? Those who are led beside still waters? Our shepherd does not fail us. There is no lack of provision. There is no lack of sustenance or rest. The imagery of provision and rest continues here when David says, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. We see the physical begin to blend into the spiritual. Now, clearly David is not an animal, right? He's not eating grass and he's not going and drinking like an animal from a stream. And this isn't about God physically giving him those things this language is metaphorical becomes obvious with the soul restoration in verse three and then the leading into paths of righteousness for the lord's namesake The the whole point here is that the physical imagery of a sheep resting comfortably in green pastures of drinking peacefully from still waters is meant to be a reminder to us humans of how god provides for us He does provide for us physically, and he provides for us spiritually. Now, the paths of righteousness here is no small detail. Saw it last week in Psalm 37, looking at the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. We talked about the challenges of life in this world. The question that we can feel free to cry out and ask God, why do the wicked prosper? Or what good does it do, God, to walk in the path of righteousness when all we get is opposition from the world around us? I think David here is trying to get us to lift our eyes off of ourselves to see the bigger picture. Our shepherd leads us in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Which means it's not ultimately about us. It's about God and his glory which includes how we suffer injustice and wickedness, how we deal with the evil that is constantly raging around us. Those things are not insignificant. They are all for his namesake. Again, I want to ask us, where are our eyes in this regard? Are our eyes fixated on our problems? On how challenging our circumstances might be at a particular point in our lives? I'll confess that I'm someone who very easily fixates on the hard things. Been prayerfully trying to grow in this area. But if you ask me, how's it going? I'm usually going to try to like say the hard things so that you'll have pity on me. So that you'll feel sorry for me, right? It's self-pity is a terrible thing. A contented sheep, someone who is resting in the Lord, has no need for self-pity. When someone asks me, how's it going? I should say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? Maybe I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but David doesn't start there, right? He starts with the Lord is my shepherd. We talked about this on Friday night in our last summer conversation in the, the praying life book or praying church book. Paul Miller talks about the resurrection Uh, resurrection focus in our prayers. He said, you know, we often come into a prayer meeting and the same person who every week asks for prayer for Aunt Edna's arthritic hip, right? And then it just spirals out of control because it's somebody started with, you know, this, this need, this hard need, and everybody just is like all down in the dumps. He's like, we need to get back to this resurrection focus, right? Of of what God is doing and and praising God. But on the other side of the coin, he says, we don't, we don't not talk about hard things, right? We do want to We don't want to acknowledge that there's hard things going on. We want to, in our prayers before God, ourselves, and with others, we want to acknowledge that things are hard, and we want to cry out to the Lord together. But we don't don't want to stay there, and we don't want to stay fixated there. So what does David do here, and how can this help us to remember by quietly resting? Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Beloved, if we belong to God, we don't need to walk alone. Ever. He is always with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. Whether that is figurative or literal. Why is Psalm 23 such a comfort in a hospital room as a saint lies dying? It's because even to the very end, the shepherd will not leave them. They need that promise. They need that reminder to the very end. No fear of evil. Instead, the blessed comfort of being protected by the rod which is used to fight off enemies and the staff which guides and corrects and pulls us back when we go astray. Are we quietly resting And therefore remembering who our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Are we resting in the finished work of Christ? If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at part of Psalm 119. And the the one thing I said to write down, even if you weren't taking notes, if you're not a note taker, you can write it down again if you weren't here. I had one thing. I said, rest from your striving and strive from your resting. What did that mean? Rest from your striving, meaning you cannot strive to be right with God on your own. You can't strive in your own strength to be righteous, to be justified before God by anything that you bring in your hands. You need to rest from that striving. You need to rest in the finished work of Christ. But then I said we need to strive from our resting, meaning From a position of resting, right? From that place of of what Psalm 23 is talking about here, we're resting in God from that position, what God has done for us, we do strive, right? We do seek after him. We do seek to be more like him. The theme of resting then continues into verse five, our second section where we see that we must remember by abundantly feasting. We must remember by abundantly feasting. While the themes of resting definitely continues here, the imagery shifts a bit. We leave the lush countryside or the shadowy valley and we move indoors to the table of the king. Now this is significant because Psalm 23 occurs in the middle of what most scholars refer to as the divine kingship psalms. Psalm 20 through 24 are the divine kingship psalms. And Psalm 23, we have here in the middle of that. O. Palmer Robertson, he points out how we often miss the significance of this placement because we focus so much on the shepherd imagery of Psalm 23. He says that the concept of God as our shepherd king goes all the way back to 1,000 years before David when Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 48 and 49. You can go read that. For yourself, but there's some beautiful combination of, of shepherd and, and kingly imagery there in that blessing of Jacob on his sons. Also, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord said to David, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So Yahweh is the divine shepherd king, and David was the earthly shepherd king. We can't miss the significance of this in Psalm 23. As king, David would have had the finest food in the land at his disposal whenever he wished, people waiting on him hand and foot. But he's not thinking here about earthly feasts. He's thinking about how God invites him to this bountiful banquet that is something far beyond anything that he ever experienced in his earthly kingdom. God here is the ultimate banquet host, and he feeds David He feeds him in a similar way to how, as shepherd, he walked with him through the valley of the shadow of death. This banquet here isn't an invitation that only includes David's friends and his family. It's not a time for catching up and telling childhood stories. This is a banquet feast in the presence of his enemies. This seems so strange at first when we read it. Like, why would God do this? What's the purpose of this banquet? What's the purpose of this invitation for David to come and feast here? This is God being consistent. This is God doing things for his name's sake. It is the Lord displaying his power and glory as the victorious divine king. David, the earthly king, experienced a lot of victories against his enemies in his life. But what David needed most was the feast, was to feast abundantly at the Lord's table, to receive anointing and, and an overflowing cup that the Lord alone could provide, things that would truly sustain him. Now, this isn't a picture here of earthly prosperity. We don't go to Psalm 23 and say, oh, my cup overflows. I just have all these blessings. It's not telling us to strive for some spiritual anointing or some some blessing that is not what we are to actually seek. Similar to the shepherd imagery, this here is a call to rest quietly, even while our enemies rage all around us. We can sit quietly and confidently at the banquet table of the king. We can feast abundantly and remember his provision and his protection. So what does this look like for us? How does this happen? It's not just from passively sitting around waiting for God to do something. Talk about striving from our resting. There is an active seeking God in prayer and worship involved on our part. A pressing in to know God more deeply, to be reminded as we commune with him of the depth of these promises that he has given to us as his people. I think Paul modeled this well for us in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. In that beautiful prayer for the saints in Ephesus, which certainly applies to all believers everywhere, Paul asks that the Father may grant them to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in their inner being, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be. Filled, filled with all the fullness of God. That's Psalm 23 language right there. That they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then he concludes with this great statement about God's abundant power and provision. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Notice how this prayer is focused beyond the cares of this world. And it reminds us both of the strength God provides for the rest of our journey in this life and the glorious future that awaits awaits us in the life to come. That's how David ends Psalm 23, as we see that we must remember by expectantly longing. We must remember by expectantly longing. David declares in verse 6 that surely, don't miss that word, surely, certainly. Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence. David is utterly confident that as God has done for him up until this point, his goodness and mercy shall follow him all the days of his life. While he still has air in his lungs on this earth, the goodness and the mercy, this word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed, which is often translated steadfast love. We saw several weeks ago, it's it's God's covenant faithfulness in Psalm 136, where there's that repetition, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then the congregation responds, for his steadfast love endures forever. That, That word steadfast love is the same word as mercy here. That steadfast love, that goodness, mercy, it will follow him and it will not depart from him. Then David looks beyond this life to confidently say, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is expectantly longing in light of God's past and present faithfulness. He's longing for his secure future in the house of the Lord, free from earthly experiences walking through the valley of the shadow of death, free from meals at a table where enemies are still present. Verse 6 includes a foretaste and a future hope. So how does this all tie together? What does this have to do with us here today? Again, this feels so distant in so many ways, right? If there's a summary statement, if there's something in terms of a takeaway from Psalm 23, it might be this. Know your shepherd king and feast at his table with a view to your eternal rest in his presence. Know your shepherd king and feast at his table with a view. Been talking about where are our eyes, right? With a view toward your eternal rest in his presence. I didn't give my usual explanation of our psalm series in the beginning of the sermon like I usually do. Ah, uh, this sermon was not originally planned. We moved a couple of different things around. Uh, I'm gonna be gone next week, and we're trying to give James a week off with with the baby he'll be preaching the following week. Uh, so this we wanted to add a we wanted to add one in and we added in this one, you know, we've been focusing on different elements of the liturgy. You can probably guess by the content of the sermon and the sermon title, what the element of the liturgy is for this one. It's the Lord's Supper. Now, clearly, Psalm 23 is not about the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper is a New Testament sacrament, and the Old Testament parallel was the Passover meal. Psalm 23 is also not about the Passover meal, right? Verse uh, 4 there, or verse 5, having a table prepared in the presence of his enemies. That, David is not talking about the Passover meal there. However, I think the parallels are abundant, And Psalm 23 does something that we all constantly and desperately need. First, it reminds us of God's present care in feeding and sustaining our souls. It reminds us of God's present care in feeding and sustaining our souls. And then it points us forward to the day when we will feast in the house of Zion. But we're not there yet. In the here and now, we still need to be sustained by his grace. We believe that God does this through what we call the ordinary means of grace. The word of God faithfully read and preached. The sacraments rightly administered and observed. And prayer. As we prepare to come and feast at this table this morning, I want us to do so with these truths from Psalm 23 fresh in our minds. I also want to turn to another passage. I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. So on page 885 if you have the Pew Bibles. Jesus, our good shepherd, after his resurrection, he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to a village named Emmaus. They did not recognize him at first, and they were having a conversation about all that had taken place in Jerusalem in the previous days. And they asked Jesus, don't you know, didn't you hear about these things? The whole city has been in an uproar. Follow along then with how Jesus responds to their questions beginning in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, how I wish I could have been part of that conversation. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn? Within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All of the scriptures point to him. Psalm 23 points to him. Jesus himself would have sung Psalm 23 as a boy in the temple. He would have had it memorized. He would have recited it. Yahweh is my shepherd. All these scriptures point to him. And he makes himself known through his word and through the breaking Of the bread. The question this morning for us is he your shepherd king? Have you seen him in all the scriptures? And here have your eyes been opened in the breaking of the bread. That's who this table is for this morning. For those who see Jesus, who know him. Who can confidently say, The Lord is my shepherd? Now, you may be in a place this morning that is not green pastures. And that's okay. You may feel like you're in a valley of the shadow of death season. You may feel like you're sitting at a table and you got enemy spears right at your neck. It's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't come to this table. It means that you need to recognize those things. You need to cry out to the Lord. You need to say that God alone is my shepherd. God alone is my king. God alone is my defender. He will keep me through those times. You need to come and be fed. And be reminded that this is no ordinary meal. But it's also an invitation only meal. This is not because we're trying to exclude anyone because we are instructed to examine ourselves and not to eat this meal in an unworthy manner. So what does that mean? You don't have to be a member of Livingstone Church to come and take the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that you would be someone who has been baptized, someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. If that's the case, then we would invite you to come forward. If you are not there yet, we ask that you would remain in your seat. We would love to talk more with you about what that means Uh, and what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to understand who he is as your shepherd king.